Hi, everyone. Welcome to the library. We're going to go ahead and get started with our event. Um, it is a pleasure to have you all here. Uh, my name is Tish Hayes. I'm one of the librarians here, um, and I'm just thrilled to have um, this event uh, sponsored by the Democracy Commitment about the impact of the conservative majority on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. There's a lot just in that title um, that both that our guests here are going to unpack for us. Um, and I will let both of them introduce themselves, but just want to give you a brief overview of what we'll be talking about. And um, this really refers to um, the shift in the court um, to a conservative majority, a conservative supermajority, and that shift has the potential to move the court away from public opinion and threaten the legitimacy of the court as an institution. So we're going to be digging into that. You may have seen many um, news articles, many people talking about this issue just in the last few weeks as um, our new, newest Supreme Court Judge, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, has been um, confirmed and has started um, working with the court this week. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about the Supreme Court that's been coming up in, in just our, our national news. And so I'll let Kevin and Mary introduce themselves and, and get us started on, on what we'll be talking about today. Thanks, Tish, and thanks for everyone being here today. Um, look forward to our conversation. My name is Kevin Navratel, and I am a political science professor and Democracy Commitment Coordinator. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Mary Fiefle-Stunkel. Um, I teach history and political science, and I'm also the study abroad coordinator here on campus. Um, and I'll just kind of go ahead from there. I've got a little kind of brief introduction into the Supreme Court um, for those of us, and it's many of us, right, who, who may not have too much understanding of kind of what goes on. And you know, we were just doing in my American History one class and in my American government class a few weeks ago, looking, reading the Constitution and, and talking about it. And when you look at the Constitution and you look at all the different articles, the ones that come before the amendments, right, because you know, we all know about freedom of speech and all that fun stuff. But when you look at the actual original Constitution, um, you know, the first article is about the legislative branch. It's got about 10 sections. The second section is about the executive branch, about the presidency. That's got about four sections, I think it is. Then you get to the, the, the judicial branch, and it's like these tiny little paragraphs. Like, it's much, much shorter, much smaller. Um, so there's not much, a whole lot written about the, um, judicial, the judiciary in the original Constitution. And uh, it's one of those that Alexander Hamilton, there's a quote from him, says, called it the, the least dangerous branch of government. And so over the years, the court, this has been a really interesting thing to look at how it's, it's developed itself and how it has, has shaped its own power uh, and the extent of that power and how it's, it's waned over the years and some other years it's been, it's been more powerful. So we're going to go through, I want to just kind of give you guys a brief, a little brief overview here. So this is the current makeup of the, of the Supreme Court. And I have to tell you guys right now, these, are, these slides, a lot of the information came from an amalgamation of PowerPoints I've used over the years, some of them from different books, and I've added some of my own information, so I have to I've got to give credit where credit is due. Um, but this is the, the current makeup with the addition of, of Judge Brown Jackson, uh, who was just added, uh, replacing Judge Breyer, who you see is the second one. So Clarence Thomas is now the most senior member of the court, um, and Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is the, is the newest member. Um, and the rest, you could see when they were, how old they are, where they went to law school, their experience before and who appointed them in the year of their appointment. So as, I, as we said, so 1991 was Clarence Thomas's appointment and that was for, by George H.W. Uh, Bush. And this is a picture uh, of the current uh, makeup of the court, the current members. 
And so just, I'm going to leave that up there for just a second for you to, to look at the picture and then just take a look at that on the right, which is, is how the, the uh, judiciary gets its, basically, its, its authority, right, in the Constitution, and what kind of cases it is allowed to, to hear. Oops, can you hear me? Types of cases it's allowed to hear. Thank you. Um, okay. So first we talk about the idea of jurisdiction, like what kind of, what kind of cases, what kind of power and authority does the, does the court have? So the court, the Supreme Court is not like a court where you watch like on TV where they go in and they argue a case and, and the defendant is there and they, they, you know, they kind of air out the whole thing right in front of you. This is like a, an appeals court, a review court. So it's looking at cases that have already been looked at and decided and looking at maybe what was done right or wrong to determine whether or not there were procedural wrongs done in, in, in the lower courts. So it's kind of like almost like the, it's the court of last resort, right? But it's really important because basically these decisions that they make are binding, right? The, 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 um, if you take a look at that on the right there, the idea of, of precedent, this is, these are federal, essentially federal laws. So people, it's funny how people, most of us don't, can't name too many Supreme Court justices. Um, do any, I don't know if any of you knew, like if you could name a couple of them before, um, <clears throat> but if you, if you could not, you would not be alone. Um, but it's, it, it, when you think about how many times that the Supreme Court can affect you, whether it's about decisions like Roe versus Wade or decisions that might relate to immigration, like DACA, or decisions that might relate to upcoming ones like perhaps about marijuana use or things like that, it can affect all of us, right, across the board. Um, so these are, these are pretty important things. Now, in terms of how many there are, we have nine uh, justices, eight associate justices, one chief justice. And that number has fluctuated. It's not always been nine. Uh, the court started with six one under George Washington, under the original court. At one point it was five, at one point it went up to 10, but the number has been nine since about 1869 roughly. Um, and, and that number has stood there. So there's no, there's no, um, nothing in the constitution that says that there has to be nine members. It could be more than that, it could be less than that. This is kind of a, um, a number that, that can change at the, at the, um, at the courts, at, at the Congress's behest. Okay. Now, how does a judge get on the federal court? Now, we were just talking right before this, one of our professors here at Moraine Valley, uh, Tom, Professor Tom Dow, his brother is a federal district judge. And if you were watching the news yesterday, you might have seen that his brother is now gonna be going to work for Chief Justice John Roberts in Washington um, in, on the Supreme Court, which is pretty cool. When a federal judge is appointed, so whether it's Judge Dow as a federal judge here in the Illinois area, um, as a federal judge, or you're on the Supreme Court, you're appointed for life. It's a lifetime appointment. So either you decide to go leave it yourself, or if you are impeached, or you die. I mean, this is like one of those things where you're there, it's usually kind of like the mafia, right? You kind of go out feet first <laughs> type of thing. Once you're in, you're in. Um, some of them do retire. Obviously, Judge Breyer just retired, Justice Breyer just retired last year. Um, but you're there for life, for good, for good appointment, is what basically they say um, um, in the Constitution. And so the, the background that they come from are usually judges or they might be prosecutors, but for the most part, they're federal judges, as you saw from that earlier slide. Um, and a president has the latitude to appoint a justice um, uh, whom he, at this point, he feels would kind of match his views, right? Um, and, and kind of like, uh, to hopefully kind of carry out the views and, and held by, by, their, by the person's party um, and by the, the president. So, from then on, once they appoint, once they nominate a justice, that, that nomination is carried forth into the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, where that person's life is like dissected completely. 
Um, and I'll talk about that in just a second. And then they're confirmed, hopefully or not, by the full Senate. So the nomination process is one of those things where it's like, it's a very, very rigorous process. When you are nominated by the Supreme Court, it's like they dissect your life. If they can find your kindergarten teacher to talk to her, to find out what kind of a good student you were in kindergarten, they will talk to that teacher. You know, were, were, were you good in uh, playing on the playground with other students? Like what kind of a person you were? They will talk to anybody they can talk to, your neighbors, friends, everyone. The idea is to vet, and it's usually carried out by the president's own party, right? They wanna know who they're nominating to know if they're gonna be problems they're gonna be facing down the pipeline. Um, and then from there, they go before this, you know, the question and answer period where all the senators can ask them these questions. Um, and, but usually in, in history, and we'll talk about this more as we go, historically speaking, president's nominees get nominated. They get, they, they get confirmed, excuse me. So if a president puts forth a nomination, that person that is, that is nominated gets confirmed by the Senate. Um, because the idea is supposed to be that it is the, the president's nomination, they have the right to be able to nominate that person, um, and therefore that person gets nominated. Now in recent years, this has become much more of a partisan thing, and that's something that Professor Navratil and I will be talking about some more. So I believe that is my last one. Um, I can maybe come back to this one, this is about decisions. Um, I can maybe, I'll leave this one for now, um, and I'll leave this too for now. These are, these are things we might come back to later on, just about how decisions are, are reached, and. Um, how the court, I, I will just say this though, about this, this, this point right here. So the court decides, this is an important point to note before we start talking about everything else. The Supreme Court picks and chooses the case that it, the cases it wants to hear. They're not told like you have to take on this case, you have to take on this case about abortion or about, or about gay rights or about free speech. The court chooses what cases it chooses to hear. So they can not take some cases. They get about, what, 10,000 cases or something, applicants a year of, 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 of different writs or different um, briefs that are submitted to, try to get them to take on this case. Um, they take on maybe about anywhere from 60 to 80. It used to be more. It's been a little bit less. We'll talk about that a little bit more, too. Um, but as, as long as four of those justices agree that these are the cases we want to hear, um, you have that, that group of four, then the case is put on the docket for, for the next year. So with that, I will, I'll stop and we can kind of go, go from there with for questions and so, thank you. Can you hold mine up? Oh yeah. And I forgot to mention earlier that both um, Professor Fafliz and Professor Navratil are gonna do brief presentations and then we'll get into the, kind of the questions and the meat of the conversation. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Mary. Uh, so what I wanted to do is get into a little bit more of the contested part of this, and that is um, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and actually question the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, which is pretty provocative. And uh, I don't do that lightly, but I, I want to make a case here. And uh, if you can follow through with me for the next few minutes here where I try to make that case. Uh, and then we look forward to questions and comments. So some recent, there's been a lot of comments by uh, members of the Supreme Court recently, and I'm gonna play, or I'm gonna show two from our Supreme Court Justice, uh, Chief Roberts. And he was at a uh, conference in Aspen this summer. And he was basically, or it was this fall, I think it was in September. He was basically making this claim that, you know, hey, I don't understand the connection between opinions people disagree with and the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Simply because people disagree with an opinion is not basis for questioning the legitimacy of the court. And a second quote of, if the court doesn't retain its legitimate function of interpreting the Constitution, I'm not sure who would take up that mantle. You don't want 
the political branches telling you what the law is and you don't want public opinion to be the guide about what the appropriate decision is. And I would agree with a portion of that. I think it's clear that at times the Supreme Court are going to make rulings that are unpopular. They're unpopular, but they're just or constitutional. Uh, there, there's several that come to mind, but one in particular, um, Brown versus Board of Education. It ended up being a unanimous ruling, uh, 1954. Um, but desegregating schools, if we had quality public opinion polls, especially in the South, that was probably unpopular. Uh, but it clearly violated the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. I can think of another case with flag burning. I think this was 1989. Um, and, you know, most Americans are opposed to flag burning, but the Supreme Court found that that is protected under the First Amendment and freedom of speech. So it isn't about one case or even a few cases being unpopular that I think is where people are questioning the legitimacy. What I'm going to try to make a case about is that the Supreme Court is out of touch with really the preferences of the American public. And then to the second quote, that Roberts is making in terms of we don't want the political branches, I think I'm also going to make a case, I'm going to try to make a case that they too are a political branch. And I think there's legitimate reasons why people would view them as a political branch. One other um, quote, this is from another conservative Supreme Court justice, and this is Samuel Alito. Um, but he's basically making a claim like, hey, you can criticize the Supreme Court, um, but taking, uh, calling the Supreme Court illegitimate as an institution or questioning our integrity crosses an important line. So that's what I was saying earlier. I think this is pretty provocative and not everybody would, would agree with this. So I look forward to any feedback you may have on this. So I could show you a bunch of opinion polls on this, but if you could take my word for it, the Supreme Court has generally been um, one of the more trusted and respected institutions in relation to the presidency or Congress, but they are at historic lows as well right now. Um, so I'd be happy to show you those if we get time or if you have any questions on those. So public trust in support of the institution is at historic lows. What I want to first start with is this idea of popular sovereignty. We talk a lot about it in my American government class, uh, but basically it's the idea that, you know, the people rule or that we, the people, are the ultimate source of power. Um, and we have an institution with the Supreme Court has always been undemocratic. We don't directly vote for them. They have a lifetime appointment without term limits. Both of those, by the way, are unique. We're the only country in the world that does that, which I think is also an interesting point that we could discuss later. Um, but the way that, uh, the point that I'm making here with how the Supreme Court is out of touch with the mood of the electorate. So we don't directly vote for the Supreme Court, but as uh, Professor Fafleese pointed out, we do vote for presidents. And over the last 28 years, we have this, it's really historic in that, in the last 28 years, we've had one party that has won the popular vote seven out of eight times. And as you may know, that party is the Democratic Party. Um, there was one, there's been a couple of elections in 2000 and also in 2016 where the Democratic Party won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College vote. But the point being here is that in seven out of eight elections, 
voters have clearly preferred the Democratic Party as far as more voters. But yet, in our current Supreme Court, we have six of the nine members who are appointed by Republican presidents and who are considered conservative justices. So despite having kind of an overwhelming preference for Democratic presidents in the last 28 years, we don't have an institution that reflects the will of the people. Um, what I would add to that, um, so and as you probably know, the last president, um, the previous president, uh, Donald Trump, lost the popular vote by about 2.8, 2.9 million votes, but was able to nominate three, a third of the Supreme Court. Um, and that number, 2.8 million, is a pretty significant number. It's bigger than 15 of our 50 states. The other unique thing is that the Supreme Court candidates, that, the, the nominees that he selected, were confirmed by a majority of the Senate, to be sure, 52 and 54, depending upon the Supreme Court justices, were confirmed by Republican senators. But those senators represented a minority or fewer Americans than Democratic senators. Um, in part, we've, uh, in my classes, we've talked a lot about the um, Senate being unequal representation. So some of the states like California are much larger and have the same number of senators as Wyoming. So just to be, to be clear here, we had a, pres a minority president, a president who won fewer votes, confirmed three justices or, that were confirmed with a minority or representing fewer Americans in the Senate. That's unique. This Supreme Court, um, we have not had, the, so this Supreme Court's conservative, and the last time that we had a liberal Supreme Court was 1969. So that's what, 53 years ago. And the, according to analysis uh, that was conducted by Lee Epstein and Kevin Quinn, this was the most conservative Supreme Court that we've had in 90 years. Uh, and based on those recent Supreme Court nominees from President Trump, um, three of them were nominated in their early 50s, we're likely to have a Supreme Court for at least the next decade or two. Um, so again, that's really out of touch with the, the, the will of the public, at least how they've been expressed uh, in relation to our vote for president. So next, I just want to make a case about, you know, it seems that Justice Roberts is very, Chief Justice Roberts is, 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 makes this assumption that they are not a political branch. And I think I'll try to make a case of why they are a political branch. So in 2016, Senate Majority Le Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, this is about, I want to say like an hour after the death of conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, he basically said, you know, it's the final year of a presidency. We're going to give a voice in filling, we're going to give the people a voice in filling this vacancy. Any, does any, that, that seems democratic to me. I mean, we've talked about how this branch, this institution is not very democratic. That seems almost democratic, like, hey, let's let the people decide. Does anybody detect any problems with this quote of letting the people decide? Yes. Because the representatives represent the people. Yeah, the representatives. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so he's saying that let's let the the American people decide in this upcoming election who they prefer for president, and then that president will make the decision. 
and since I'm short on time here, I'm going to cut to the chase. The American people had already decided. We had a pre so President Obama. This is February of 2016. The elections in November of 2016. Obama is president until January of 2017. So he's he's got like what 10, 11 months left of his presidency. The American people had already voted overwhelmingly for. Uh, for him, a huge electoral advantage in the, both the popular and electoral college vote. So like the American people had already voted. They voted for this president to have a nominee on his watch. And of course he nominated Merrick Garland. If, if you've heard of him, he's currently attorney general. But Merrick Garland never received a confirmation vote in the Senate in part because, uh, well, entirely due to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell saying that they weren't going to confirm that nominee. Um, so perhaps like Republicans just created a new norm, like, hey, from now on, we're not going to have a Senate vote on any judicial nominee in the final year of the election. Um, in fact, one of the senators, uh, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, essentially made that point. He's like, I want you to use my words against me if there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy that occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say Lindsey Graham said that Let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. As you know, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away in September 18, 2020. And eight days later, uh, Republican President Trump nominated and, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. And she was approved, uh, she was voted on by the Senate in, a, in the only party line vote that we've ever had for a judicial nominee. And she essentially was confirmed when millions of Americans had already been voting for the new president and a new Senate, which, by the way, both happened to be Democrat. So that was historic as well. So in part, the claim that, just to be clear here, the claim that I'm making is that this confirmation process and not having a hearing on Obama's nominee Garland, but yet violating that same norm and, and having and kind of pushing through rather quickly um, Amy Coney Barrett has politicized the Supreme Court, and I think Americans have detected that politicization of the Supreme Court. Another way, um, sometimes when I ask my students what they think of, of politics, they often talk about like lying or corruption, politicians who aren't being very honest. And so another way that I think we can view the Supreme Court as just another political branch of those three uh, nominees that Trump had, they were essentially all not very forthcoming, and in fact, outright duplicitous in their Senate hearings or their private meetings that they had with senators about their respect for Roe v. Wade, about their respect for precedent, not overturning previous Supreme Court decisions. So I just want to play, or I'll, I'll show you two quotes from, from one of those justices, uh, Kavanaugh. And this was taken from meticulous notes that he had with um, members of, of, of senators in their private offices. Um, start with my record, my respect for precedent, my belief that it is rooted in the Constitution, my commitment that it's importance to the rule of law. I understand precedent. I understand the importance of overturning it. Roe is 45 years old. It has been reaffirmed many times. Lots of people care about it a great deal. I've tried to demonstrate I understand real-world consequences. I'm a don't-rock-the-boat kind of judge. I believe in stability in the team of nine. 
And then I just want to play a few segments of some key kind of swing senators, a couple uh, Republican senators who basically felt misled. Um, this is Susan Collins out of Maine. She's saying throwing out precedent overnight that the country had relied on for half a century is not conservative. It's a sudden and radical jolt to the country that will lead to political chaos, anger, and further loss of confidence in our government. And again, this is a Republican senator making that claim. Another senator, Republican senator out of Alaska, Lisa Murkowski, said confidence in the court has been rocked. Um, one, I think I'll make this my final point, um, and that is uh, perhaps two more points. I always say final, but there's always more than one final. Um, we happen to have six out of our nine members who are currently conservative of the Supreme Court. Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, and we, curiously, we also had six of the nine members were conservative. They were appointed by Republican uh, presidents. And I just wanted to juxtapose, and this is really messy. I made it at the last minute last night, but I was trying to find a way to convey this. What I'm showing here, on this side, we have these are the um, justices that were part of the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. This is who appointed them. So notice Richard Nixon appointed four of these uh, nine Supreme Court justices. He was a Republican. Eisenhower nominated two. He was a Republican. And so of the seven, seven members who um, voted in favor of Roe v. Wade, the right to have an abortion in the first trimester, uh, five of those seven were conservative members, right? It's, it's pretty interesting. They're spanning several, and then two uh, Democratic-appointed uh, Supreme Court justices, one by FDR and one by uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson. And then the two dissenting, we have one nominated by Kennedy and one by Nixon. So what's interesting to me, or what stands out to me is like just the difference between that decision and you know, really what happened in this, this summer uh, in June, it was a decision uh, of Dobbs. It was deciding a case in Mississippi about whether they could have abortion restrictions starting at 15 weeks instead of 22, 23, 24 weeks. And essentially, instead of just deciding that case, they went beyond that case and decided, well, let's completely overturn Roe v. Wade because they believed that that was wrongly decided. And so on the right-hand side, what I did is basically point that those, uh, of the six Supreme Court justices who are conservative, essentially all of them, and I, I left out Roberts because he voted in favor of Dobbs, but he actually made a distinction. He made that distinction that I just pointed out, that the case before them was really just deciding whether abortion restrictions could be as low as 15 weeks. He didn't see that it was necessary to completely overturn Roe v. Wade. But to this point, is this a political branch? Well, well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much lockstep. Democrat-nominated Supreme Court, uh, not, uh, Supreme Court justices all voted together. Republican-nominated Supreme Court justices all voted together. That's completely different than what we saw in 1973 over an abortion case. Um, the last point, I will make this one my last point since I've said last twice, is that I think another question of legitimacy and this idea of popular sovereignty, like can, can um, citizens actually, can we through our government solve big issues? And because of polarization and gridlock, um, you know, the filibuster in the Senate, 
it's been really hard for Congress to get much done. And in, in part because of that, presidents have issued more executive orders. You know, Professor Fleece pointed out that this was supposed to be the least dangerous branch, but this, in that the, the court has kind of ebbed and flowed of how much power it has. An important distinction is this court, recently, the Supreme Court has become more powerful, in part kind of stepping into the void left by these other two branches in overturning decisions by other branches of government. And I, I put up on the screen here a quote from Abraham Lincoln. This is in his uh, inaugural address in 1861. If the policy of government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by the decisions of the Supreme Court, then the people will have been ceased to be their own rulers. And um, I'll leave it there, but the, the point with that is that whether it comes to New York making strict gun laws, in part because of all the gun-related violence issues that they've had, gun laws that they've had in place for over 100 years. If you're not familiar, the Supreme Court basically blocked their ability to do that this past summer, took away the right of New York to create those gun restrictions. Um, and also uh, climate change, another example, like a major issue, California is burning, wildfires, they've got huge heat waves, uh, we've got flooding, all kinds of issues related to climate change. And when governments have tried to make decisions on that, the Supreme Court has essentially tried to block that, one of which um, regulating carbon emissions from coal-fired plants. Um, the Supreme Court this past summer overturned um, a decision allowing the EPA to basically regulate that. Since I happen to know several of you do need to leave at 1.30, I think this is a good stopping point with our part of the presentation. We have a lot more that we can talk about, but we also want to turn it over to you and provide opportunities for any questions, comments, or turn it back over to our moderator to ask any questions that, uh, they, that she has planned. You have questions? All right. Um. I, have a, I have a microphone. Um, can you hear me? Oh, yes. okay, I can hear myself too. <laughs> what is the, um, what do you think like the worst case scenario is moving forward as far as like um, the conservative majority having so much power at the moment? And do you think, and I guess on the second question, um, do you think there's a, do you think, how, how long do you think they're going to have this power over the court for? When you say worst case scenario, do you mind elaborating a little bit? Like, yeah, what do you like, think is the worst um, case scenario? as far as like, um, uh, key policy issues being overturned, such as Roe v. Wade, and I know that it already is a very mm -hmm. serious thing, but could we see similar things in the future mm -hmm. being overturned that have been precedent for so long? So, you mind if I... Go ahead. So, um, thanks. That's, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so, on the, the... Yesterday was the first day, actually, that the Supreme Court convened now for its new, for its 2022-2023 um, session. Um, and so, there's been discussion over some of the, the cases that are coming up on the docket this year. Uh, one of them is regarding affirmative action. And there's been, there's talk over whether or not the case that was, that is going to be decided, whether or not that might be another actually overturning of precedent. Remember, going back to what I was saying before about precedent, why precedent, precedent is so important. That's what, what judges use to rely on to make decisions on cases that are before them. They look to see what was done before them to make decisions for the future. So precedent, and precedent is not always sacrosanct, it's not always, it's not always right, but for the most part, that's what, what judges rely on when making future cases. So for, the, for example, for the affirmative action case, um, they're looking at whether or not 
Um, and in the cases I have over here, students for fair admission versus president and fellows of Harvard College. And this is regarding whether or not, one, of, one aspect of it is whether or not Harvard University has discriminated against Asian American students. Um, and by all accounts, based on some of the, the things that have been coming out already, those who kind of watch the Supreme Court closely are already kind of making the determination that most likely they're going to rule um, against uh, previous precedent, which was to kind of uphold um, the allowance of race being a factor in admissions. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make, that, make this distinction. So what the court has done before in the past, you know, and what they've attempted to do over the years is to kind of strike a balance. You know, there's a couple quotes I wanna, I wanna uh, make mention of here. One of the things that, you know, kind of going to Professor Navratil's point, the idea is that, you know, what is the, what is the point of kind of the court's legitimacy, right? It's the idea that, that they are, should the court defer to the elected branches? Are they applying existing precedent? Are they crafting compromises? And the court, I think in previous years, has tried to do a, a decent job, not always, but I think they've tried to strike, uh, even under, under Chief Justice Roberts, a, a kind of a compromise position. So in 2003, you had a couple of cases that were regarding affirmative action that was before the court. Both, both involving University of Michigan. Um, one case involved um, the uh, undergraduate admissions program and the other one involved uh, their, their law admissions program. And the court ruled on these cases like simultaneously. And the one that involved the lower, the lower, uh, the undergraduate program, the court said that they could not, they were basically, that the, the University of Michigan was using a, almost like a points-based system for using race as a criteria for admission. And the court said that cannot, we cannot use that kind of criteria for admission. On the, for the law student though, this was the, uh, the case, I think it's Grutter versus Bollinger, um, they said that, you, you, that race can be used as a determining factor in admission. It just can't be the only determining factor, but it can be used as a determining factor. Sorry, I didn't mean it go so loud there. Um, so what's expected by many who are kind of watching the current court is that they most likely will strike down this idea of race being considered as a factor at all. So, and I know that people have very kind of mixed views on this. Um, and we can talk about the notion of, of like having, why it's important to have diversity on campuses and the, the extent to which it should be used as a criteria. But the court, with the court's previous decisions, kind of make, try to maintain that balance of having like, okay, point systems and quotas, not so much, but race can be used as a kind of an overall determining factor if using kind of a holistic approach to admittance and education. Um, so it's, it, that seems to be one where the court may also kind of throw that one, throw that one out. So we might be seeing more than one precedent, um, like Roe v. Wade, being overturned. Um, so the court definitely doesn't seem to be having a problem using kind of an activist type of approach, which is kind of at odds with the idea that many of the justices who are in the majority um, kind of adhere to this notion of judicial restraint. Um, this, this, this very kind of more of a, cons a conservative, literally kind of philosophy, philosophical approach about looking at the Constitution as it was originally written and not to stray too far from, from the originalist intent. So I hope, I, don't, I hope that answers your question, but that's kind of maybe one aspect, I'm sure. Okay, I'll just add to that. Um, so when we break down precedent, I think the idea is, so this is the worst case scenario, Nick, of, of what could happen, right? Can, can I just add to what I think could be the worst case scenario? Breakdown of, of, of law and order, of rule of law, when you break down precedent, um, and I can get real dramatic here. So the, the Supreme Court, legitimacy is its source of power, really, that we find it legitimate. They don't have the power to tax or you know, create money. They don't have the power of the sword, the, you know, the executive branch, the military. So if they, if they lose their legitimacy, it's you know, thinking about 
playing sports without referees. I mean, if, if the referees are not viewed as legitimate, then that's a breakdown of our democracy. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, to not, I don't want to overstate that, but there's multiple cases that are going to potentially diminish our democracy in this upcorn, um, upcoming Supreme Court. Um, one that's been, you know, the, the, the biggest one of all regarding a breakdown of democracy potential is a Moore v. Harper case. And it's been referred to as the independent legislature theory. It's dealing with a case in North Carolina, and, and hopefully the Supreme Court will limit their decision to simply whether the state of North Carolina, whether states can, the legislature, can basically strike down um, a, a, whether they have to have a, if a, jerry, if a district is considered one of the House of Representative districts are, are, are gerrymandered, whether they have, they have the ability to block that. If, if a Supreme Court views that that's violated the state constitution, the argument is, if independent legislature theory, that the, sta- the state legislature can create their own map and push it forward, irrespective of what the state Supreme Court or the state constitution says. So basically, in North Carolina, um, the, the state constitution and the Supreme Court ruled that you know this was um, a violation of uh, of their constitution. So if, in this case of the uh, independent legislature, the, the the legislative branch has the ability to overturn the um, constitution in the state Supreme Court. A broader ruling on that could be, let's imagine in 2024, we probably don't have to be too imaginative here, but some of these states are going to be pretty close. Imagine states like Pennsylvania or potentially um, Wisconsin, where Democratic presidential candidate gets the most votes, but the legislative branch at the state level is controlled by Republicans. If they, if they wish, according to independent legislative theory, they would have the ability to send their electoral college votes irrespective of how their citizens of their state voted. So potentially, you know, imagine a situation where in Pennsylvania, Democrats win by 150,000 votes. The Republican legislature decides to turn their electoral college votes over the Republican candidate, thus throwing the election to the Republican candidate. That's a breakdown of our democracy. That has a real potential, real possibility of happening. Um, you know, there's another case, I'm, I'm familiar with it, but uh, of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that basically um, it, the, the case is dealing in, in Alabama. Um, Alabama has uh, 27% of their population is black. They have one of their seven uh, congressional districts that is majority black. Um, the I want to say the state Supreme or uh, a, a state court or a federal court ruled, including had two Trump appointees ruled that that violated, it was a gerrymandered, it was a, a, a map that disenfranchised black voters in Mississippi or in Alabama. And basically uh, the Supreme Court is likely to rule that um, they are going to be able to create their own map irrespective of diluting the power of black voters. This is a huge violation of uh, the Voting Rights Act. Um, that's another huge di- you know, downgrade of our democracy as well. So those are just two examples, but um, you know, there's, there's, there's many others when you lose the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Well, this is kind of funny because usually he, I'm more of a doomsday scenario. He's usually more like kind of the moderate. I'm, I'm going to respectfully, I disagree slightly with him on, on the last couple. I, I definitely can see the Alabama case going 
because it's involving federal and the Voting Rights Act, and the, and the court has already showed a willingness to strike down parts of the Voting Rights Act. But as far as the state one, I don't know if I'm convinced that the court's going to rule that way, because I think the, the, wide, the wider implications regarding state jurisdiction overall. So I'm not, I, I could see them drawing the distinction between those two cases, but I also can see anything is also, I can see that anything's also possible as well. Um, do you want to interject with that? Or? Um, and then just to follow up, uh, I guess, like, what, what are we able to do? Anything? <laughs> no, we're just here to scare you and <laughs> no solutions available. <laughs> It's a complicated question because, mm -hmm. you know, um, in the short term, and I, I hate to be political in favoring a party here, but I just want to be real honest, in this upcoming 2022 election, um, if Democrats don't retain control of the Senate, there is zero chance, in my opinion, that if there was an opening on the Supreme Court, which there probably won't be in the final two years of Biden's presidency, but I cannot see... Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell um, having any Supreme Court justices that uh, Biden would nominate if he happens to be the Senate Majority Leader. So, you know, we, we don't live in some of these key sw Senate swing states like Wisconsin, um, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia. But those races, if you can get involved in those races, that's one way. And, th and that's in the short term. The long term, and we debated about how much time we should prepare for this, but there's reforms that need to be made to the Supreme Court. Um, we've had previous moments in US history where the Supreme Court was, was also very conservative and also blocking um, a president, and this is uh, the, the 1930s, uh, late 30s, and um, FDR um, tried to, or basically threatened to pack the court. Like, hey, we've got all these Supreme Court justices who are nominated by previous Republican presidents. We've got a major crisis with the Great Depression. We need to have some major programs to try to get us out of this crisis that could potentially doom our society and democracy economy. And so we threatened to basically increase a number of Supreme Court justices for every justice that was maybe over the age of 70. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the age, mm -hmm. but it would have been something like six. Add a justice for everyone. Hey. And there was a lot of blowback to that. But interestingly enough, a couple of the Supreme Court justices um, had, had kind of changed their tune and, be, and became more receptive to, uh, I want to say, the Social Security program and great, uh, some of the other programs that, um, that um, uh, FDR had put into place. And so they call this like the stitch in time that saved nine. The reason that we still had nine Supreme Court justices is that it was kind of like a blowback pitch, if you will, you know, moving a, a, a batter off the plate. And, and uh, you know, there was a lot of talk of this leading up to the 2020 election of maybe increasing the size of the Supreme Court. Um, a really important, I think, reform would be that we have term limits to the Supreme Court, that instead of having justices get nominated at age 50 and serving into their upper 80s, from you know multiple generations that like most of the other countries you have a 15 or 18 year term limit for supreme court justices mm -hmm. and then you can have kind of a, a nice and neat formula for 18 years you could do every four-year presidency they get two supreme court nominations and it really kind of takes the stakes that, that make makes these stakes a little bit less um less intense to where i, I think it's fair to say 
um, that most of our recent Supreme Court nominations have just been a train wreck to watch um, for the nominees themselves, Katanji Brown-Jackson, I'm thinking of Kavanaugh. Um, these have been really, really contentious events. So there's other reforms that, you know, if we want to move in that direction, we, we have a lot of other ones that we could mention, but I think we need to really think about uh, reforming the Constitution and, and, and the Supreme Court. But I also have pointed out to my students the last substantive change that we've had to the Constitution was also 50 years ago, and that was allowing 18, 19, and 20-year-olds the right to vote. Yeah. This Constitution's impossible, next to impossible to change. It's really hard to change. And so even as that is a long-term solution, it's hard to imagine Republicans going along with that. Before we jump into more questions from the audience, I was wondering kind of what you two would like to do, because I think we could either continue to talk about like changes. You both, I know, have lots of ideas and thoughts. Um, so if that's interesting to our audience, we can move that way. Or um, I also, if people want a little bit more about like the illegitimacy, maybe the impacts of this politicization, mm -hmm. um, or just like the specific politics that have gone into like these particular judges, mm -hmm. I definitely have some, mm -hmm. could have some follow-up questions about that. So kind of depending on which way you want to sure, go. Sure, sure. I, I mean, kind of going off of, off of both your points, um, I was going to, you know, yesterday I was just reading in the New York Times and I sent it to Kevin too, and I know he, I think he'd already seen it too. The um, New York Times had an opinion piece about the court and its legitimacy, which is kind of obviously given the first, yesterday was the first day, or Monday was the first day. Um, and the, and the, the fact that the justices are all talking about it, so the idea that, that Rob, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts is talking about it, Justice Alito's talking about it, Justice Kagan, um, was talking about something, kind of saying kind of the opposite. And Amy Coney Barrett over the summer, Justice Barrett was saying something too. And, and the point that the, um, that the author of this piece was trying to make was that the fact that they're talking about it in and of itself indicates that there is a, that they are also thinking about the fact that there's a legitimacy problem. And that does that indicate perhaps that there's an awareness that, that there is, has been such an erosion of, of trust. Um, and, and were they perhaps insulated and was, we're not expecting maybe the blowback that they are getting from, from Roe. Um, the idea that even in, in, in Kansas that had a special election over the summer to talk about whether or not they were going to um, have a, you know, a law of their constitution about banning abortion. And usually elections that are kind of off like that and off times can oftentimes be, um, you know, only specific voters vote and it, it, you can't oftentimes get a, a big turnout. And this motivated voters, like 70% of the, the people that were, that were um, uh, registering to vote were women for the first time, and they overwhelmingly overturned it, um, said no. And so I, I wonder if maybe some of that blowback has kind of gotten them thinking, because they're not immune to public opinion. The court, the idea that the court does not ever listen to public opinion is just not true, because they do, they do respond to public opinion. And we've talked about in my classes how in the 1990s, when Congress uh, passed DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, which was an act that made it unconstitutional, that said it was, that uh, uh, um, marriages between a man and a woman um, and that um, the Supreme Court declined at that time to take on listening to the constitutionality or, 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 or um, making a case about the constitutionality of that bill, of that law. Um, but fast forward about 20 years and you've got a totally different landscape in America. Because at the time only 25% of Americans were in favor of gay marriage. By the time you get to about 2012, 2013 when those cases and then 2015 when Obergefell versus Hodges is, is sent down, um, you know, the vast majority of Americans, over 70%, do support gay marriage. 
So it's a totally different landscape. And then they're willing to take on those cases. They were willing to take down those cases. So the court is not immune to public opinion. They do listen to public opinion. So I, I'm, I'm going to be kind of curious to see how this is going to go moving forward. Um, I also have my hesitations and my, my concerns because now that we have a new precedent with, with Roe, which is now this, the Dobbs case, is this going to be now the new precedent that they're going to say that, you know, if, if one new challenge has come up to, to laws that, well, we have this new precedent, now it's, you know, banning it, um, you know, that's also a concern too. But I just want to throw, throw that out there. Um, this kind of dovetails with a question that I have that I think you both could speak to, which is, you know, given um, our current political landscape, and thinking about you know the events of January 6, 2021, um, and you know Kevin, you talked a little bit about, or I think talked about like just a minority, the counter-majoritarian institutions, and just like this minority focus of the court. of the court. Mm -hmm. um, will popular opinion, although it may matter, do we have? are these activist judges going to be kind of taking things into their own hands? And if they really do sense that there is an illegitimacy question of the court, like, does that, I don't know, uh, like, implore them to have conversations among themselves, maybe make some shifts and adjustments, or are they going to be doubling down? Mm -hmm. Like, given the, po the politics of these particular judges that have been recently appointed, do we see then, like, that double down, mm -hmm. which we saw, I think, in the Dobbs case? Or if this question of illegitimacy is continued um, over the next year, mm -hmm. are there people on the court that might help shift them, mm -hmm. like an internal kind of reckoning? Yeah. That's a great question. And I, I, I also just want to tie it to the comment that came from Nick in the audience and that I think that by us having this event and, and if, if this movement continues to grow about questions calling into legitimacy of the Supreme Court, that's something we can do. I mean, we want it to be legitimate. Just because there's six members of the Supreme Court are conservative doesn't mean that that's, it doesn't have to be illegitimate. We've had Supreme Court justices who are both conservative and liberal who are moderate. And that's what I was trying to show with that distinction between the 1973 Supreme Court case. I think there's a real possibility. You know, I think uh, Chief Justice Roberts, an institutionalist, somebody who believes in the legitimacy of the mm -hmm. Supreme Court, wants mm -hmm. to retain that. And I think, as Mary pointed out, the fact that they're having speeches on this, they are concerned about it. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there is a possibility that we could move the Supreme Court. The problem is, is five of them are very, very conservative. And you know, arguably, as Chief Justice Roberts is too, they're all, there's this uh, libertarian kind of conservative group, the Federalist Society, that essentially is, is a movement to, to select conservative Supreme Court justices. And this was largely created because they didn't want Republican-nominated Supreme Court justices to be moderate. There was several examples of those. I'm thinking of, um, John Paul Stevens, who was nominated by Richard Nixon, ended up being one of the more uh, liberal members of the Supreme Court. Uh, David Souter was nominated by um, George H.W. Bush, ended up being a liberal member of the Supreme Court. They did not want that to happen again, so they nominated more conservative members. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think Robert, you know, who knows who, by the way, that another you know, concern with the Supreme Court, there was a leak with this draft opinion of, of, yeah. of overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, and all of the Supreme Court justices are really concerned about it. But one theory out there is there was an attempt, try, uh, perhaps by Judge, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, to try to lobby somebody like Kavanaugh or somebody who might be a little bit more moved to be moderate. Like, hey, we can have limits on abortion 
at 15 weeks. That's still really conservative, by the way. We do not need to overturn a decision that was made seven to two. You know, what makes us uh, and a 5-4 decision more important? So I do think that there's the possibility to move the Supreme Court to be more moderate. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, what I've, what I've noticed with the cases that are on this current docket is that doesn't appear to be the direction that they're going. And perhaps I'm getting off on a tangent here, but I want to make this connection to the case that Mary was bringing up with uh, Defensive Marriage Act that passed in Congress in the, uh, 1996, that it took almost 20 years for the Supreme Court to rule on that. And I remember even early on teaching a class here at Marine Valley in 2006, talking about how it made no sense that in some states you can be married as same-sex couples and other states that you can't. It's clearly a violation of the 14th Amendment, but we have um, uh, the full faith and credit clause that any legal judicial court proceedings made in one state have to be recognized by another state. It's why your driver's license in Illinois works in Wisconsin. If you're married in one state as a same-sex couple, how do you move to another state that doesn't recognize same-sex marriage? and then potentially try to get divorced in that state. It made no sense. It made no sense for the Supreme Court to wait 20 years to decide that case. But I wanna contrast that with this case of 303 Creative LLC versus Alinas. Yeah. And this is a case in Colorado where basically uh, Lori Smith, who owns a website design company, and she's basically making this claim that serving gay customers, so if her, if her website company is forced to make websites for same-sex couples, this violates her free speech and her First Amendment of uh, free exercise of religion. It violates her religious beliefs. She, and I was just playing this video from my class today, she's yet to have made a website for a wedding that I'm aware of, <laughs> nor a website for any same-sex, has she been requested to make a website for any same-sex couples? The Supreme Court decided to hear this case. As Mary pointed out with the writ of certiori, it only takes four justices to call this case. Why are they calling to hear this case right now? Yeah. Why did it take almost 20 years for same-sex couples to have the right to marriage? Why did the Supreme Court take so long for that case? That's the concern here is that their ability to select cases um, and, 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 and really be activist judges and determine the trajectory. So. Well, I'm with this, with this case about um, the... Oh, sorry. Going along with the, the selecting thing, that just I just had something to add um, or to ask. Do you think there? How would you go about changing that? There's would there need to be like a committee or something to sort of select what cases should be brought? What are the more important cases in like the current um, like pub like uh, in the public sphere in like that moment? Or is there another? Solution? How would you change like change the court's makeup? You mean not the, how many? No. How cases? would you? Oh, the cases. Yeah. What cases get? Heard by the court. Well, that's, so it's not the, just selective. So the the court has that selective power, though. So the court is. How would you, but we could change. How would we change that? How would we change them from from being being able to do that? Um, I mean, is there a way? And oh, there's a way. We're smart people. <laughs> I mean. We have to like think big here. We've we in so many areas. We've done miraculous things. You know, and maybe we need to start thinking of the private sector here and, and some of their ideas. But one, one, we, you, the Supreme Court used to hear way more than 80 cases. You know, maybe we increase the size of the court. Maybe we have a rotating. Am I not understanding? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm the, is the question like how, how do we get the court to hear more cases or different types? Cases that the public thinks 
Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I was misunderstanding the question. So okay. if there's, I think it's at least a thousand and I, I should know this, but anywhere from a thousand to 10,000, that's a huge difference yeah. of potential cases that could be ruled on that. And they, and they're choosing approximately 60 to 80. We could expand the circuit court of appeals. We could have, there's this idea of having a rotating Supreme court where you're pulling members of this, of, of uh, circuit courts to basically be an ad hoc Supreme court case. Um, so we have a commission perhaps that says these cases are going to be decided by this ad hoc Supreme Court and by the ad hoc, it's people who have already gone through the confirmation process to be federal judges, circuit court judges, and that per perhaps we have more of those groups deciding some Supreme Court type cases. There's, and again, we're not judicial scholars. We don't have to come up with these solutions today, but they exist. They're out there. We can do this. Well, can, I, can I just add one quick thing? I'm sorry, but Congress has the authority to expand the courts. So, so if you want to put pressure on your congressman to do that, or your congresspeople, we can do that. So that is directly a power that you have as citizens. So that's one direct method of, of lobbying your members of Congress to, to do that. So that is one direct way that all of us could get involved. Sorry. Oh, no, I just wanted to make note of a question here and then a question over here. Hi, my name is... Hi, my name is Laura, and a couple of us are from the ASL class, and I just have a couple questions for the interpreter. Are you employed here, and what is your name? My name is Jesse. Okay. Hi, my name is uh, Dominic Goltz. Um, I had a question um, regarding uh, saying alternative solutions for the Supreme Court. Um, like the uh, gentleman mentioned earlier, uh, like we have the power to change precedent and, uh, you know, force new new ways of, like, uh, procedure into being. But um, it is historically and, like, hilariously hard to get people to address the way we do things, especially when it comes to the Constitution. Um, and there is just a matter of, like you said earlier, uh, like the Brown versus Board of Education case, um, is it really in the best interest for the people to address problems directly, like popularly? Um, we could look at like countries overseas, like um, uh, in Europe, where they have referendums, where people like in a direct democracy mm -hmm. all directly vote on issues. Um, but even then, is that more or less illegitimate than the Supreme Court? Can we like it seems in the direction we're going, uh, the opinion of most people is that um, the decisions and uh, opinions they are making are more destructive rather than constructive. But would it not be said that um, the sort of like inflation of their uh, like political uh, leaning, the extremism you see in their in their bias, can that not be like generalized to the whole public? Would it not? Would it be more or less illegitimate if we? had sort of a direct democracy set up to uh, vote oh, on these issues directly? Are, sorry, are you saying that, that, that if, would, it be, would it be worse if we had basically, is, is it better off to have what we have essentially versus having more of direct democracy where people could vote and hear like tyranny of the majority kind of thing? Is that um, what you're asking? Yeah. I was sort of piggybacking off what he said about the Brown versus the Board of Education uh, example. Um, you know, we see compared to sort of like the moderates, like he said, on the uh, board that originally voted on like Roe v. Wade, and what was it, 1971 or 73? Uh, 73. Um, 
there was still a conservative majority, but they were much more moderate. Mm -hmm. Today, uh, political biases and leanings are much more extreme mm -hmm. uh, to almost like a comical degree. Um, we see it in the Supreme Court, but if we had a you know, direct democracy referendum sort of alternative where people popularly voted on these issues, would it be more or less? Well, you kind of saw that in like in the case of Kansas this summer, right? Because because Kansans voted directly for what they wanted in their state, and so I think that in and of itself was kind of a, a repudiation of that decision, right? That the idea that they voted popularly to say we are not going to add that to our constitution. Michigan's got one on the ballot as well, um, and it, there there seems to be a widespread support overall. There's an uptick in women um, registering to vote for the first time across the country, and it's in the statistics are higher in states where abortion bans are in place. So not states like Illinois, where you know, our, our laws are, are, are different, um, but they're, up, they're higher in states where the abortion bans are in place. So I think that you are seeing an opportunity for more of this kind of direct democracy that you're saying about, like, with, with direct referendums, like the idea of, of voting on, should we add that to the Constitution or not? Um, so I don't know if you want to add anything to that too. Well, yeah, I don't think we want to go that. I, I'm a democracy lover, but I don't want to put major questions to a, a vote amongst the people, uh, constitutional rights to put to a vote to the American people. I think there's a lot of hybrid models in between. You know, many, many of our state judges are voted for. Again, I'm not trying to say that we should vote directly for Supreme Court members, but just know that that's, it's done at the state level. Um, and then another, you know, the term limits and lifetime, you know, having some sort of age limit or term limit, I think makes a lot of sense. Another possible reform is to have perhaps, you know, five uh, liberal judges, five conservative judges, and then five um, appointed by a commission come you know be the deciders of who makes the Supreme Court have the American Bar Association ratings be you know or some sort of a commission created by them there's a way to lead to more moderate just justices to where and there's a bunch of different reforms that we could use to go in that direction another thing to keep in mind and where I was going earlier with the inability of, of citizens to solve their own problems and I think uh, Professor Fafleese mentioned this, but judicial review is something that was is not in the Constitution. Actually, it was interpreted by the Supreme Court that they had this ability to overturn um, laws by Congress, uh, and maybe they should have that. But maybe there should be a higher threshold instead of five-four decision. Maybe it should be seven to two or six to three or something like that. There's a lot of because again, we're unique in that way that we give the Supreme Court the ability to overturn laws decided by a majority of Congress, majority, you know, House, Senate, and those are people that we vote for. So it's really unique that we do that. And so there's a lot of other possible ways that we could reform this. Yeah, the court has taken that power actually. <laughs> it wasn't even given to them. The court kind of took that power. Um, so I guess um, my question is, what is the incentive for these justices to have such a far-leaning bias, if I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the um, term limit, the lifetime term limit, put in place so that biases wouldn't interfere and it wouldn't be like you're trying to right. secure your next, you know, two Election. years or? So I just don't understand what the incentive for them is. So as Professor Naversal mentioned earlier, um, historically speaking, again, this has been the branch that people have understood the least, right? Um, and that most people could not name a Supreme Court justice. 
but in the last 30 years or so, the nomination processes have become much more uh, tumultuous. Um, and because we've had some justices who, when put in place, so let's take the abortion issue, for example, with Roe v. Wade. Um, so when Sandra Day O'Connor came on the court as the first female appointed to the Supreme Court by Reagan uh, in the 80s, there was a belief that, because you know, she said that I am, I am pro-life, I am you know, against the Roe versus Wade decision, she said this you know, publicly, but when it came time to vote on it, she upheld, she narrowed, she voted to narrow the decision on Roe v. Wade, but to ultimately uphold it, kind of maintaining that balance that the court has, been, has tried, of moderation. Um, other justices like Kennedy and Souter, that was like one of the chances, like no more Souters, or we don't want any more, we don't want justices that we're gonna put on there that we think are gonna be, um, uh, that we think are gonna be more our way, perhaps maybe more conservative. No, and then they become reasonable, it's the opposite. We wanna put them on to, to overturn stuff we don't like, let's say as conservatives, but then they come on the court and they're much more, they're much more moderate. Um, and that was true of, of, of multiple justices. Even, even, even someone like, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was appointed by Clinton, um, she's actually had a, she used to be guided by a, a modicum of, of judicial restraint herself um, and, and would find herself voting on, I mean, because the idea of, of being a justice, you know, you should be able to set aside your partisan beliefs and ideas sometimes to vote based on what the law says, whether you agree with it or not. And, and Professor Nevertil cited the case, um, the 89 case of the flag burning and Antonin Scalia voted to basically say that, that, you know, as much as he would disagree personally with the idea of people burning flags, it is a person's constitutional right to do so. It's part of their freedom of speech. Um, and he was not a guy that you would, that would see at a, you know, your local flag burning, uh, you know, uh, uh, rally uh, close by. Definitely would not be a person that you'd see doing that. Um, so over the years though, the past like 30 to 40 years though, the, the Federalist Society, which is a, 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 um, a conservative, um, um, NGO, not classified NGO, who's been giving lists to, to, to uh, Republican presidents of who, whom nominate um, to get people with more of a conservative bent on the court. When Trump came in, when Trump was running for office in 2016 and seemed like very much the underdog against Hillary Clinton, um, the smartest thing he did was to basically go on TV and say, okay, I've got, I've got these lists of, judge, of justices from the Federal Society and I will appoint this one, this one, this one, and put the list on, on his website and say, these are the justices I'm going to appoint. That will overturn Roe v. Wade with a, with a, with the who are going to be determining to to overturn Roe v. Wade. One of them was Amy Coney Barrett, her, like her and she was appointed to, to the uh, the uh, circuit was it the circuit court of appeals or of the no the federal district court first I believe. Um, so that is one of the reasons why there's been much more of a of a kind of activist kind of bent because and, and kind of a leaning away from this this notion of because because if you look at even. Um, when we we might want to argue that that um, Chief Justice Roberts was more of the kind of the moderate voice, he's been kind of outweighed now, it's six to three, right? Whereas before he tried to kind of take that tone of moderation, he was the swing vote in the case that, that maintained the Affordable Health Care Act back in, I think it was 2012, when most people thought it was gonna be struck down. President Obama, I think himself thought it was gonna be struck down. Um, and surprisingly, he ended up being the swing vote that kept it in place. But he's kind of losing that power to do so now because he's, he's outnumbered. Um, so, yeah, do you wanna- Yeah, sorry, just add to that, uh, that maybe the, Senate being so polarized leads to polarized Supreme Court. So it's so it's so high stakes now, right? You can nominate somebody, I think Amy Coney Barrett may have been 49, but the other justices, Kentonji Brown Jackson, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch were, you know, basically early 50s. So this is like a multiple generation legacy that the president can can leave. So to, to nominate somebody who's uh, very liberal or very conservative 
is a great transaction to your supporters who help put you there. And I think to, to Mary, to Professor Fafli's point, he was very, President Trump was very skilled of trying to be clear about who he is going to nominate to help get out the evangelical, like very um, religious group of voters who could de uh, detect that he was going to only nominate judges who would, justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade. I just wanted to throw in, um, earlier Nick had asked uh, what we could do. And I mean, the simple thing to say is to vote, right? I mean, your point, Mary, about Trump appealing to voters by saying, here's the judges I'm gonna elect. And then um, Kevin, your, your point um, about uh, whatever point you just made that I forgot. Um, <laughs> oh, about the, um, the, you know, going back to Roe or whatever. The, you know, the, the right has made that their issue. That no matter what, I have friends who did not like D Donald Trump but they were so convicted mm -hmm. yeah. on overturning Roe yeah. that they decided to vote on him, vote for him, and it worked, right? He got three justices where um, a lot of my friends that tend to vote Democratic don't always show up. Mm -hmm. and it was just in 2017, Illinois had a Republican senator who would be a voice in approving justices. So it's not like we don't have any power here. So whatever, whatever side of the vote you might be on, yeah. um, when you don't show up, this is what happens. And on the left, they haven't shown up. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's more complicated than that, I know, but we have to be committed for wherever we stand. If we choose not to vote, this is where we end up. Yeah, so that's been bothering me since Nick asked the question. I just wanted to say that. So thank you. Yeah, Seventy thousand votes in three states, basically. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, but I do think it might be a good takeaway to talk about. Um, I mean, you both have made the case that we're we're looking at an illegitimacy issue here, right? That the court is looking illegitimate. So if we and that the court isn't going anywhere, that we don't have another justice that we're going to be, you know, welcoming in anytime soon. So if this illegitimacy issue is not addressed, um, what does that mean for democracy more largely, or the three branches of government? When we think about like the way our our government functions these three branches together, if the court doesn't address its illegitimacy issue, like what happens kind of, I don't know, how does that ripple out and impact all of us, either specifically because of the cases or just more generally in the way we all might be thinking about democracy and, and our government? That example of Andrew Jackson, did you want to talk about that? Or? Oh, yeah, I can, yeah. Yeah, I can, let me see if you want to say it. But, yeah, yeah. So, um, the 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 yeah. So Professor Neverdale was he and I were talking about before um, about so back in the 1830s when Andrew Jackson was president, which we'll be getting to American History 201 students very soon. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court heard two cases on the Cherokee, and the Cherokee were uh, Native Americans in, in the state of Georgia who were being pushed off their land. The proposal was the Indian Removal Act, and uh, Congress and President Jackson wanted to remove them from their land. Um, the Supreme Court heard, heard two cases, largely back-to-back, -back about that issue, and ruled in both cases, basically, that the, the president does not have the authority to remove the, the Cherokee off their land. This is their land constitutionally. We cannot take them off their land. And Andrew Jackson responded with something to the effect of basically, well, you know, the Supreme Court has said what they're going to say. Let them try to enforce it now. And they, they couldn't. They did not have the, you know, right? So if you look at the three branches, right? The executive branch enforces the laws. The legislative branch is supposed to make the laws. The judicial branch is supposed to interpret the laws. And if the, you know, executive branch decides not to execute the laws, then they don't get executed, right? So in this case, they just kind of ignored it. Um, we haven't seen that, at least amongst the 
well, I, and I, I'm so, I, I don't want to make any prognostications because I'm, I'm so afraid of doing that. I'll get myself in trouble. But um, the idea of ignoring ignoring a, a ruling like that would be would be just such a um, seems like such a violation of a norm. But anything is within the realm of possibility now. And I think that's the the context that I would make this statement is that that's the real possibility now of states basically ignoring court decisions. And um, on top of that, I think with some of the cases that we've referred to of, of basically, despite where we're at racially in the United States to basically end any race preferences for college admissions or diluting the impact of minority voters and um, basically discriminating against um, gays and lesbians um, under this context of First Amendment uh, freedoms, I think would put a lot of people out in the street and uh, you know, I, and be a situation where we'd have a lot of civil unrest in the United States with with the direction that we're headed with some of these cases. So, for all of those reasons, it's, it's really important that we have a legitimate Supreme Court that we um, abide by their rulings. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's really the key. You know, I was trying to think of this of of you know the kind of a three legged stool. And they're often in the background. We don't know much about them. They were, they, as Mary pointed out, the, the, the least dangerous branch. But it's a really important leg of this three-legged stool. Um, and it's, it's not going to stand without it. That's a good sound bite. Good sound bite. Good sound bite. Yeah. <laughs> Any final questions before we wrap it up, though? It was a good sound bite, but do either of you have any other final points you'd like to make? I'm good. Thank you. Anything else? Yeah. I don't know where I'd, where I'd end. Otherwise, I have so much to say, yeah, too. Just, I'm, I'm not even going to bother because I, I literally have pages of stuff I've still written down, so I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> You're good. All right. Thank you all so much for attending. Let's give our um, presenters a really great round of applause. Excellent. I know I learned things. Thank you for being a great audience, and thank you to Tish for being an awesome moderator. And I think we'll be having another sort of related panel, um, and I forget the date. Kevin, do you remember? Yeah, that's uh, so we are going to have a, a follow-up event. We were thinking that Roe v. the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade would kind of be the elephant in the room. So I believe we're looking at uh, November 14th, a Monday, and I think we'll make an announcement soon, but we're looking probably around 10 in the morning uh, on November 14th, where we explicitly just talk about um, Roe v. Wade being overturned. So again, thank you, everyone. Thank you, both. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.